Welcome to the Fezoro Podcast. No telling what you might find. Listen in on talks and discussions ranging from dream analysis to spiritual or psychological topics to some other things. Soak in the good vibes and thanks for joining us. You taught me how to speak, showed me what to eat, yeah, you gave me lots of friends. You showed me fire burns, you taught me tables turn, now I'm turning on the heat. like Star Wars fill some of that need for the spiritual adventure for the hero. Oh, it's perfect. It does the, the cycle perfectly. It's not simple morality play. It has to do with the powers of life and their inflection through the action of man. One of the wonderful things I think about uh, this uh, adventure into space is that the narrator, the uh, artist, the one thinking up the story, is in a field that is not covered by our own knowledges, you know? So it's much of the adventure in the old stories is where they go into regions that no one's been in before. Well, we've now conquered the planet, so there are no empty spaces for the imagination to go forth and fight its own uh, war, you know, with their powers and uh, that was the first thing I, I felt there. there's a, a whole new realm for the imagination to open out and live its forms do you when you look at something like Star Wars recognize some of the themes of the hero throughout mythology well I think that George uh, Lucas was using standard mythological figures the old man as the advisor well, specifically, what he made me think of is the uh, Japanese swordmaster. Remember, a Jedi can feel the force flowing through him. I've known some of those people, and um, this man has a bit their, their character. Well, there's something mythological, too, isn't there, in the sense that the hero is helped by this stranger who shows up and gives him some instrument, a sword or a sheaf of yeah, life after He life. gives him not only a, a physical instrument, but a psychological commitment and a psychological center. This time, let go your conscious self and act on instinct. Well, he had him exercising with that strange weapon and then pulled the mask over. That's real Japanese stuff. That was from the incomparable Power of Myth video series with Joe Campbell and Bill Moyer. You'll hear another snippet as a transition later in this episode. On April 1st, I spoke with Vicki Mead, a psychotherapist working in Nashville, Tennessee. She's also the mother of my old friend Ryan Lenning. Vicki has had a strong effect on my unconscious world. This is expressed in her appearance in several dreams I've had over the years. They feature her usually in a wise, guiding, and perhaps somewhat maternal role. Today's episode features a dream I had the night before I spoke with Vicki. The talk conveys some insights about the field of psychology, as well as the coming-of-age motif, in which we become more fully awake to our potentials in life. In contradistinction to her genuine modesty, her own son recommended her to me as I was trying to figure out how to be an adequate father to a complicated teenager. And if anyone has the opportunity to be fatigued with a psychologist, it's usually their own family. The free counseling I received in response to that recommendation consisted of a couple of phone calls over the years, which felt like pearls of great price. But you know, that's how it works, and it's part of the theme of this episode that quality friendships are deeply therapeutic, and that therapy is really based on a kind of wise and loving friendship process. So you aren't disoriented. Names come up in this conversation that I should clue you in on. The name Lana is mentioned. She is my aunt and a retired psychotherapist in Nashville. 
Maxwell School is mentioned. This is an international Baha'i-inspired multi-faith school with the spiritual curriculum I attended in Canada during high school years. That experience has had the strongest positive effect on me throughout my life. Though the school closed many years ago, my oldest son Ethan attends a similar school in the Czech Republic, a fact which is also lighted on in this discussion. We'll set the mood for our interview with a poem by Sufi poet Hafiz. The voice reading it belongs to my young friend Nima Nasiri, who at the time of this recording is also pictured sitting beside me in the logo image for the Fezoro podcast. Admit something. Everyone you see, you say to them, love me. Of course, you do not do this out loud, otherwise someone would call the cops. Mm -hmm. Still though, think about this great pull in us to connect. Why not become the one who lives with a full moon in each eye that is always saying with that sweet moon language what every other eye in this world is dying to hear? Baby, how are you doing? I'm great. It's such a pleasure to talk to you again. Every once in a while, I get to hear your voice. <laughs> you as well, honey. So what are you up to? Well, I do have this uh, this podcast, but my method has been that um, basically it's all it all happens in the editing So because I want it to be conversational. So I keep all the yeah. formalities yeah. as something that I just do <laughs> offline, okay. you know, in interviews. So, um, but you know, these days I'm I'm in school at Belmont studying and uh, studying psychology, as I may have mentioned. And uh, Ryan told me that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's quite a trip. I'm having a very fun and interesting time. In fact, sometimes I right. one of my problems is that uh, because I'm so interested in psychology, I, a lot of times I, it's hard for me to shut up in my classes. So I have to constantly try to try yeah. to not. Not yeah. take over the class. <laughs> but it was a it was a good experience. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. So, so um, are you enjoying it overall? I'm enjoying it a lot. You know, I um, most recently I wrote this essay for my called psychology writing or writing psychology course. It's a level three writing course, but its emphasis is on the psychology of writing. And so uh, she wanted us to write about the profession that we're entering and uh, what it is that we think is, is important and how we see ourselves and emphasizing mm -hmm. sort of the psychological aspects of what that experience is going to be like for us. So I chose to write about the conjunction between religious and spiritual traditions and psychology, which I knew would be very yeah. controversial and tough to write about. Yeah. And uh, and she didn't want me to write about it for that reason because it seems like a potentially very hazardous thing to get into. But fortunately, I was able to talk her into it. And what I ended up with, actually, I, I think is really good. And uh, and in fact, she said that there were structural issues, uh, which there are, I guess. But we we had a uh, you know like a, a review period where we share our. Uh, our, our respective essays with a group of, you know, some eight other students and mm -hmm. ask them questions. And my question was, okay, what about this essay affects your sensibilities, whether you're, whether it's your religious sensibilities or, or your yeah, intellectual sensibilities, because that's mm -hmm. going to be the hazard. And everybody was like, mm -hmm. no, this is good. This, this I dig, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, that, I was very surprised by that and very happy about it because I was trying to yeah. speak to people in a way that was credible and, and uh, yeah. you know, yeah. it, it's a tough thing. But to me, it's like if we're afraid to talk about those two disciplines in a single conversation, we can potentially miss out on a lot. Basically, you know, I, I just think that when we consider AA and we consider um, so much that Buddhism has brought into psychology in recent years where other uh, devices and methods have often failed. You know, often, you know, mm -hmm. they don't garner what we want, which is long-term psychological health and like happiness, you know? Right, right. I think right. we're, it's an empirical necessity that at some point we have to acknowledge, look, you don't, you can, can or cannot believe in God but you have to give some credence to the fact that some of these really old traditions, they're doing something that's real. Whether what they believe in is real is a secondary right. question, but what they're doing, 
there's real healing going on and something we need yeah, to pay attention to. Just the fact that it's been going on forever. Yes. Uh, gives it credence too. Yeah. Yes, most definitely. Yeah, I agree. You know, in, in my practice, I certainly run across people of faith and people who are non-believers and trying to find what the, where their center is and trying to honor whatever that is. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting topic for me, what you're yeah. doing. Yeah, I, I was happy to see that it seems like it's not just interesting to me. It seems like it's interesting uh, to, to uh-huh. the generality. Oh, yes. And, you know, yeah. Jung, Jung talked about it in much the way that you just did. He says, uh, uh, you know, he says that, you know, my goal is not to convert anybody uh, to one way or another, either to scientism or to religion. But he says, I really want to try to discover what somebody's fate is and help them mm-hmm. meet. You know, it's like if you could have, if you could, have, the way that he talks about it, it's kind of strange because you think, well, how do you know what somebody's fate is? But if you could, reach back in time and think about Martin Luther King before he became king. Mm-hmm. What if he never got there? You know, <laughs> what if he ended up, yeah. you know, not changing the world, you know, and we don't, we're not all supposed to be Martin Luther King, but the point is, is that we do all have something in us that is remarkable if we can just tease yeah. it out, you know, and yeah. that that yeah. prejudice, I think, is worth clinging to. And uh, yeah. and and so Jung Jung's point of view was, and he even said, he said, I, if if that is to be a Jew, I want to make you the help you become the best Jew you can be. If that's to be a Christian, then then so be it. If it's a pagan, then then you know so on. Yeah. Um, right. But but I that that's important. More. Yeah. So, um, so this dream that so I had. Tell me about your, yeah. Yeah. Tell, yes. Tell me about your dream. <laughs> okay. So, uh, what happens is in the dream, it opens up and I am invited to your home on the moon. Oh, on the moon? Oh, yeah. you've got a home on the moon? You've got a home on wow. the moon. Yeah. Yes. Okay. It is cool. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. You've invited me to your home on the moon, and no one lives there but you and your husband, and no one's allowed to live there except for you and your husband. So it's quite a rare opportunity to be invited to to vacation on, on at your home on the moon. And so I uh, I'm like, yes, I'd love to do that. And then and then I'm just sort of there, and the whole question of getting on a spaceship or whatever that just never comes up. I'm just like sort of there. <laughs> yeah. And, I love it. I love yeah, it. and you advise me that I can't leave that the plot your home is on, which does include a yard, so I can go outside, as it were, but not beyond the fence. And I shouldn't, ah. I should not set set a single foot outside of your plot. And I, I was tempted to do just that, by the way. And you got pretty stern <laughs> about it. You're like, nope, you you cannot do that, right? <laughs> and uh, so. The rest of the moon is kind of treated by everybody, like governments and NASA and you. It's treated like a nature preserve. Every every mm-hmm. pla- every place other than your home, and you're the only person that's allowed to live there. It's treated kind of like a nature preserve, or even more kind of. It makes me think of like the Galapagos Islands after Darwin left. Like you're, for example, you have to get uh, special. Um, licenses to visit the Galapagos, even though they do have tours, and you're not allowed mm-hmm. to touch the uh, rock iguanas and stuff, you know? So it's kind of like very, mm-hmm. very special. So I'm there for like a day, and you ask me what it's like for me. What is the experience of being on the moon like for me? And at that point, I immediately look up, and I point out, uh, I'm pointing at the stars, and I say, look, you know, I'm noticing that this rotation is really fast. So the moon is like spinning. It's very exaggerated. I can see it kind of reminds you of those uh, stop motion videos that they have of the skies where you can actually see the spinning occur, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You can see everything sort of spinning around the North Star. Wow. And and it's much brighter and sharper and larger. All of the astral bodies are just sharper and brighter and larger. And in fact, I can see galaxies and nebula and cosmic bodies that are invisible from Earth. 
And I'm just talking to you about this, just like I am now, even though you're there too, you're just nodding your head and just sort of taking in that, you know, I'm reflecting on this. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm pointing out that I can see all of these colors that from earth just appeared white or very close to it. And of course I thought about Mars, how you, sometimes you can see a red tinge to Mars, but it's faint. And, uh, the stars are moving so rapidly and I'm continuing to, ex- to describe this to you that it causes me to feel, uh, like kind of panicky and I have to fight this. Mm. I have to sort of be careful not to gaze too deeply or for too long, or I might become terrified and you don't mm-hmm. say anything. You're just sort of listening and, and nodding. And then there is like a scene change. And actually we could, we could chat about what, uh, what the dream has done so far. Cause that's kind of a part one of a two part dream, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I wondered if you had any thoughts about that or if I should continue. No, no, I, I'm just listening so far. I'm okay. hearing thoughts so far. Yeah. Okay. This is a, a, a very interesting thing about these uh, mythological themes. That <clears throat> the achievement of the hero is one that he is ready for, and it's really a manifestation of his character. And it's amusing the way in which the landscape and the conditions of the environment match the readiness of the hero. The adventure that he's ready for is the one that he gets. I have so, to tell you that as a as a psychotherapist, I am absolutely horrible at dream interpretation because I've got this thing <laughs> that my kids always refer to as literal idiocy. I'm so literal that sometimes it's hard for me to to see the metaphor. Well, you know, you know what's interesting about that? That might be, but I do know that um, for one thing, Jung is not that big into, so to speak, interpretation in terms of just converting uh, you know, a metaphor into what it basically translates to. He more talks yeah. about amplification is this idea that, you know, obviously kids have dreams and they're not going to understand them necessarily, but it's still something that you're dreaming for a reason and it's an experience, you know, mm-hmm. and they're important to pay attention to because like for instance, a good example of, what Jung, I think, is getting at is the fact that we know statistically that pregnant women, especially first-time mothers, huge amounts of absolutely terrifying nightmares, right? Well, the, I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and the interesting and about their babies, terrible, like uh, Shakespearean horror mm. type, type stuff. Mm, yeah. um, and it would seem, uh, at least I would speculate, that, and I think I've heard this somewhere, that it's basically the, the function of it is you're not supposed to necessarily interpret it, although you can interpret those too. They, they're, the kind of nightmare that you have can be psychoanalyzed. But even without doing that, really there's an, a more important push and purpose of the dream, and that is to sensitize an inexperienced mother to every imaginable kind of danger. Because that child... Oh, what an interesting thought. And that's going to happen whether or not you understand it. You're going to be... You're going to have high anxiety about this child. And you know what? If you didn't, child mortality would be huge. The body knows. The body has this wisdom that's not about putting a symbol in a decoder ring. It's much deeper than that. Mm. It's preparatory. Mm. Yeah. So there's so there's yeah. this initiation to make the mother to make the mother more resilient. Oh yes, absolutely, right? absolutely. And you know, women's uh, maternal instinct and the fear and the anxiety involved is legend mm-hmm. and the bane of young men who are tired of their mothers worrying about them. But you know, I can't tell you how many times my kids have tried to kill themselves when they were toddlers. You know. Um, yeah, so one, there was some comedian who talked about, you know, watching toddlers as being on suit. It's like being on suicide watch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true. yeah. Yeah. And, true, and, true. and, and one time I left Ethan as a toddler in the car when I visited my mom because I forgot he was with me because I was so tired as happens when you're a new parent. Yeah. 
And I was so upset when I realized what I had done. He was in the car for like 30 minutes. And I thought this, if this had been daytime, this could have been fatal. I, I just started crying. I was so upset. So, you so know. It makes you really understand the tragedy when that happens to people. Think it's happened. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, yeah. you know, that the, the self-righteousness, the older I get, the more mistakes I've had the opportunity to make in my life. Uh, self-righteousness dies hard, but it does yeah. little, little by little diminish. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and, and I remember a couple times when Ryan told me about dreams that he had that you interpreted for him right away. You might not remember this, but he was dating a girl named Barbara and uh, he had a dream. Uh, this was a, actually a, a friend of mine at the time. He had a dream about her that you interpreted very quickly <laughs> and effectively. But um, Well, maybe I've become more humble in my old age about my ability to interpret dreams. I can imagine, like, how, how um, I don't know, self-righteous I might have been <laughs> in those days when he was still dating. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, it was a good analysis, and it was one I wouldn't have thought of. So a lot of times, like, you know, Sun Ray, who's not studied dream analysis, a lot of times she'll be able to interpret my dream for me. Uh, in a way that I couldn't, and it's because she knows me a little bit better than I know myself in some particular area. Right, right. So and a lot of that. My sister's good at that with me, and my sister will can see stuff like that in me that I can't see in myself. Yeah, totally. So totally. That's probably true. Probably yeah. So, true. so the craft of the dream work is not enough. It, a lot of it. That's why it has to be a partnership, I think. And uh, yeah. There's stuff that needs to be known that the analyst is going to have no way of knowing, no matter how many books on mythology they read, you know, about right. that person's right. life and that person's associations. Right. So basically the part two of the dream, this is like in the future. And I don't know where you are. The moon is now colonized. Okay. But oh, it's, but it's okay. a small, it's like a slow, careful colonization. So it's no longer the case that the whole moon is off limits, but most of it is. And there are colonies there. And the interesting thing is, is that only children and their educators are allowed to be colonists. So I'm there. So what does that mean? Children and their teachers. Yeah, children, children and, and their teachers. Because right? the teachers need to have their, I mean, the kids need to have teachers. If they're, you're going to have teacher, if you're going to have kids, um, they need school. So, mm -hmm. and, and I'm sort of just coming to the awareness that, oh, I'm here as a colonist as well. And somehow it's like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm dumb to a lot of the details and I'm figuring it out as I go along. And what happens is, yeah, you are there actually. And I think it is still mm -hmm. your, the place where I'm at is still your house actually. So you are there. Uh, but again, this is like in the future. And at, at some point, I'm just sort of hanging around in the house and you come in and get me and you're like, class is about to start. You're the teacher. Get out there, kid. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I mm. stumble into this outdoor area where there are kids sitting on the ground and I am standing in front of a lectern and you tell me, so these kids don't speak English and they need to learn English. And you just, at this point, you just need to read this passage to them. Okay. Because you're an English mm -hmm. speaker. So I look at this, this piece of paper that you've given me to read and that same paper is projected on a screen so that they can see it. And it's just supposed to be them studying language. And it's some kind of a simple uh, story about it involving animals. And the thing is, is that all of the words are in English, except for whenever there's an animal, the animal that is named is an animal that only exists on the moon. And, <laughs> and it's totally not an English word. In fact, it's pretty much a little drawing. It's like a little hieroglyph. Oh. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> and so, Wow. Yeah, it it look it'll be like a little drawing of a little creature in the midst of this sentence. And so what'll happen and this is where it's like to me it's actually very much like sitcom at that point. Because if I'm thinking about this dream, I think I probably was laughing a little bit while I was asleep. <laughs> because I'd be reading the sentence and I'm like, what do I do with this word? <laughs> what is this? You know? And I would stop yeah. and stumble. 
and I would say blah 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 blah, and then the uh, moon wolf uh, jumps across the fence, and then the uh, the monster that looks kind of like a deer, <laughs> you know, like, and it was kind of like that, right? Wow. And and then at a certain point, I actually told the kids, I said, listen. You know, you'll have to forgive me, but the, the link, the English that I was taught didn't have a lot of these animal words. And these animal words are not part of the English at all, and I don't know how to pronounce them. <laughs> <laughs> and then I continue to, to read and do the best I can. And at that point, they're, they're okay with it. And uh, interestingly, all of the kids, most of them were male. They were probably between the ages of like 8 and 12. And... They were all either black or Chinese. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I think well, that, I that might be the first, the the last first thought that I had. The first thought that I had when you told me, like, they're only children and they're educators, it made me think of your son, mm-hmm. who, who now where where is, is he in the Czech Republic? He is. Yes. Yeah. Brian told me about that. And it made me think about him being away from you and Sun Ray to be educated. So he's kind of gone somewhere that I, I could kind of speculate that as a parent might feel like another planet. Yeah, that's right. He's so far away to feel like it might as well be the moon is so far away. Yeah. And he's with his educators. I don't know. Just, just That makes thought. total sense. I think that that's absolutely an association that is... Up, totally where that image comes from, and it didn't occur to me at all. Oh, good. So I'm glad I know something about you that can make it helpful. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Well, they don't call it the unconscious for nothing, you know? <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. <laughs> you know, in the back of my mind, I'm like, my kid is on another planet, is kind of the way to yeah. say it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that that's where that comes from. Yeah. Some of the things that I think about is that, uh, and this is another association that I think is related as well, is um, I do mentor a group of youngsters that are probably around that age group. Mm-hmm. Now, they're not black and Chinese. Most of them are Persian girls, but they're a variety of races. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had this strong urge after uh, consulting a little bit with a mentor of mine from back in my Maxwell days when I went to school in Canada. That mm-hmm. And this guy was a dream analyst that had a very strong influence on me and uh, really inspired me a lot. And one of the things that he did that was very impactful for me was he did these guided meditations. And so I had an urge to do that with these youngsters. And I did that a couple weeks ago. And I would say it was the report card was kind of mixed, but in a sense, very positive because I'd never tried to do anything like that with young people, uh, but it was something that I felt like I had enough muscle memory and enough of a sense of what I was trying to do from the experiences when I was young that it was worth mm-hmm. trying to do and see if this could be a real experience for some of these young people. And I think for at least half of them, it was a powerful experience. And part of it was that I wasn't fully ready because it's the first time I've done it. Uh, and mm-hmm. and they weren't some of them are on the younger uh, end of that spectrum, and they weren't quite sure what what the heck it is that I was doing. But I talked to them a little bit about the indigenous self and trying mm-hmm. to get in touch with you know the the root of what we feel and trying to uh, you know and we had Eli and some of his friends uh, practice for this and probably a little bit of African drums while this was going on, and we talked about mm-hmm. entering you know, uh, a positive altered state of consciousness and how this is something that you have circles and drums and music and all of this is a way to shift your consciousness in a way. That's something that all cultures have done since the beginning of time. Yeah. Um, it was a kind of a good experience, but the the hieroglyphic animals makes me think of just kind of a, a, of a notion of the objects of the unconscious and getting people in touch with that and the indigenous mm. self because it's a primitive kind of language that's grafted onto the modern language that I'm native in. So Well when I visualize hieroglyphic animals, I always envision them in drawn inside a cave somehow. Yes. Yes. Which, that's how it felt you too. Know, just a, 
the notion itself means something remote and historic. Yeah. I'm glad or, that you know, I'm glad that that came up for you because when I looked at, in the dream at these little drawings, they reminded me of cave drawings at the, in the dream. Yeah. 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 Fascinating, Daisy. Yeah. 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 So, um the moon uh visiting you on the moon. I think you just sort of have become this uh kind of Yoda guide in my dreams for whatever reason. <laughs> because you were you were kind of a mother figure to me when I was young. And you well, are I feel very honored. <laughs> yeah, and you you're, you're a you're a you're a psychologist, and I, I think that I, I don't know about you, but my feeling is is that a lot of psychologists aren't able to be very helpful to others. This is kind of what I get from people that I've. It's not always true. I mean, there are definitely exceptions, and I'm, I can think of many. But a lot of uh, people that I know that have, uh, you know, tried to make use of psychiatric or psychological services of different kinds uh, over the long run, they feel like they haven't they haven't moved forward very much. You know. Yeah, and I, you know, I saw something just recently on Facebook that Lana posted where she was disappointed, and Lana is a psychotherapist herself. You know, yeah. she was a psychological examiner, and um, you know, it just it actually surprised me. I guess I really didn't know that because um, I think um, Jeremy Seals posted something. Other people posted things about I don't know, kind of like the unhelpful things that that your therapist can say to you in the session. And I was like, oh, wow, I, I, no, I didn't know that. I really didn't know that. But yeah. I felt bad. I felt bad for all the, the bad therapy they had gotten, you know, that left them feeling that way. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that's some, that's, one, that's one of my big questions. Yeah, that's one of my big questions in the field is what's going on there. And it's something yeah. I wonder about. Um, I know that uh, I don't know that this is part of the reason or that it's not, but it's a question that I have. Is part of that because psychology has become so focused on evidence base and science that doing well and making it all the way through academically as a psychologist will tend to mean that you're more of a scientist than you are a therapist? Because so that's kind of something I wonder go, about. Do you tend to go to go for your doctorate? I'd like to. I'd doctorate? like to. Yeah, I'd like to probably go that far. Yeah, at this point, but okay. I haven't decided. Okay. Um, I, I'm a master's level psychotherapist, so I do not have a doctorate. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I may not be burdened with as much science as you would be going for your doctorate. Yeah. You know, there's a certain amount of science to get through, uh, but also I feel like I I may be existing in a little bit of a bubble <clears throat> in that I've been working with a population that's pretty similar for the last 17 years, I mean, mostly, and um, honestly, I, you know, I, I, I think I use my education 25% of the time, and the rest of the time it's just experience in my gut, because my clients are, are a lot like me, yeah, and they're a lot like e they're a lot like each other. Mm -hmm. And so, if uh, I feel like if I just if I'm sitting in my office with somebody that I can relate to, maybe the most important thing I can say to them is that I I think I might feel exactly the way you do if that <laughs> had happened to me. You know that, and I it's not it's not, it's not advice at that point, but it's just saying there's nothing wrong with you. Your feelings are legitimate. Yeah. And every feeling you have um, has a reason for existing and and there's nothing dysfunctional in that. And it's like you get to decide how you're going to respond in a behavioral way to this, but ultimately what you're feeling is understandable. Yeah. And you know what I'm saying? And so it's like I don't know where the science is in that, but I do think that when you go, and I'm glad you're going to go for your doctor. I think that's awesome because you have the ability to do that, and I think you might bring a lot of humanity into the sciences, uh, much-needed humanity. Um, so 
Yeah, that cool. sounds like right. something that resonates with me. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, it, yeah. I, I, I bring that up because it's something that I'm always wondering about. Like, why is it that a lot of people, for a lot of people, there's a stigma there. It kind of reminds me of how you, you there's good lawyers, right? There's no doubt, though, that there's a stigma about lawyers. Mm-hmm. You know, and that and that to a small degree, at least the stigma is true that they can be greedy and uh, uh, kind of uh, relativists, morally speaking. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So there is it's just there. And I just wonder about it. Um, but in the experience that I had at school, uh, I worked with, you know, a couple of my professors over the past couple of years and uh, a student or two. It struck me that the people wonderful people, but these guys are geeks. They're not therapists, you know? Uh-huh. And mm-hmm. I'm thinking you of... Know, faith, faith, yeah. let, me, let me just interject something here. It's my biggest problem with the DSM-5 sure. and, and all, all the statistical manuals is that the people on the board that decide what's going to go in there are all psychiatrists, yeah. even though we all have to abide by it, whether we're social workers, I mean, every, every, everybody has to abide by it, but they are all psychiatrists. And most of them, if they're practicing at all, as opposed to write, just writing things, mm-hmm. you know, they're big on publishing, um, they, they, they spend 10 or 15 minutes with their patients deciding what the next medicine is to give them. Yeah. They are not, they're not spending an hour at a time with their patients. Mm-hmm. getting to know them and getting to understand. I mean, these are the folks that decided it's okay to diagnose bipolar disorder in children. Yeah. And you know what that means? It means medication. Because mm-hmm. that's the way you treat bipolar disorder. And it, you never used to be able to diagnose bipolar disorder in a child. You you had to postpone that diagnosis until they were at least 18. Yeah. And so my con- I, I, I mean, that's what you're talking about. I oh, yeah. You, that's you definitely one of the things. A psychiatrist in charge of, of the, you know, the Bible for diagnosing people that we all have to go by just so that they can get reimbursed by insurance, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. And I wouldn't deprecate the science, but it's just that the emphasis, I think there's a bit of a dis... Uh, so, my sense is that there's a bit of an imbalance because, like, for instance, my path is... Even though I might become a professor, I'm still interested in the therapeutic aspects of psychology. But yet, mm-hmm. any kind of psych degree that you want to get, as far as I've been able to tell, is very heavy on stuff like running labs on things that, fascinating as they might be, are really only quite interesting if you're a scientist or the author of a psychiatric mm-hmm. textbook. So right now, I'm doing, yeah. like for example, a lab on... It's not that it's not interesting, but it's really not core to me. Uh, I'm doing, we're, I'm part of a group doing a lab on uh, when you imagine a bright light, but no, there's no uh-huh. luminous change in the room, do your pupils dilate? That kind of thing. Hmm. So yeah. the skills involved yeah. in writing a, a long paper about a tiny, minute detail like that, that is a psychological detail, it's laborious <laughs> you know you have to love like yeah. graphing calculators and, and stuff like that you don't yeah you know <laughs> like yeah. what makes you a, yeah. a therapist i think is something that you kind of have or don't before you ever set foot in school and you definitely need an education to sharpen it but i have a sense yeah. that there's something that is not super efficient in the way that you're trained to be a therapist uh and I think a lot of those people go to social work, which is great because I think that's a, mm-hmm. it's a great mm-hmm. field, you know. And there's a lot of wonderful, yeah. wonderful people yeah. in it. Um, but uh, but have I don't know. You know, about, have you thought about have you thought about PsyD? That is probably what I'm going to go for. Yeah, PsyD. Well, I could really picture you doing that. It's more clinically based and less, yeah. um, little less nerdy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But <laughs> he would like, you know, just kind of getting in and getting your feet wet with that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Good. Good. That's a good idea. Um, yeah. And it's something yeah. I'm thinking about. But uh, but I might I might change courses. Uh, or I might change courses. Sure. I, I even think about maybe yeah. social work. But, but um, 
yeah, um, I don't know. It's just, it's a pretty neat, uh, dream to wake up to. And I, I wanted to talk to you soon. So I'm glad you were available tonight because, uh, while things are fresh yeah. on your mind, you know, yeah. get in, enthused about it. Um, I'm wondering, is there anything else in the, is there any other images or things going on in that dream that are maybe worth interrogating a little bit? I'm thinking about hmm. the, uh, I, I think it's interesting that in the dream, I'm, I, I'm in part two, it seems like I'm disoriented, right? So I think uh-huh. that there's, there's a sense in this dream, there's an aspect where I'm conscious of the fact that I am like a journeyman at this stage. There's, I'm going to be disoriented. Uh, I've got a lot to learn. There's a sense of that. Like you have to, in the dream, you have mm-hmm. to like push me in front of the kids and tell me well, you're supposed to be teaching now. And in the dream, it came as a mm-hmm. kind of a surprise to me. Like, oh, I guess, like, yeah, why else would, would I be on the moon? Uh, only teacher, mm-hmm. teachers and children are allowed up here, so I must be a teacher. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there is that so, reluctance so were, to take the reins okay. of the thing that I'm doing, you know. So you needed guidance as well. Yeah, I think I think uh, there is something in us, and people sometimes will get it, and sometimes they won't, and sometimes they have to find it from within themselves. But there's something in us when we are striving in the thing that we're passionate about, whatever that is, a longing to hear someone else affirm your identity in that role. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. A longing absolutely. for that. Yeah. And and also even a desire to be pushed in that direction so that you don't feel like it's hubris for me to get up there and take and grab the mic. Mm-hmm. I think we all go through that mm-hmm. a little bit. It's kind of a modesty thing mm-hmm. or a you know, I don't know, that's not the right way to think about it. I think it's almost like when a bird is fledging, of course they're gonna hesitate before they leap out of the nest. Most birds will. Mm-hmm. And you actually mm-hmm. see in many of the species of birds, the mother will take, pick a moment when she will decide mm-hmm. in her wisdom, you know what? I can safely kick him out of the nest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And she'll actually kick, give him a nudge, you know? And so that's kind of a natural response to sort of responding mm-hmm. to that, uh, that sense of approaching your destiny mm-hmm. at a certain moment, I think maybe mm-hmm. I think w- maybe with this essay and with this experience with the the youngsters and the meditation experience, which I think was powerful and positive for the most part. It's funny because I was like a little self-critical, thinking my voice doesn't sound very meditative, you know, like Dick Hastings did, who who guided me when I was young in Maxwell. But then it's like, mm-hmm. well, yeah, I, I haven't developed my meditative voice yet for this kind of thing. That takes experience. Mm-hmm. You know, to relax yeah. and trying to yeah. help everybody else relax. You know? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, it's interesting to me because I think it takes a, a combination of um, kind of a um, bravado that's uh, almost like um, self-assurance to mm-hmm. even put your foot in the water, and then it takes then you get a big dose of humility. Yeah. And then and then a lot of grace gets dumped on you by some mentor along the way. For me, that mentor was Max Haskett, who was the, my first boss in this yeah. work. And he was just different from anybody I'd ever, ever known and, and remains to this day to be different. He's one of the most sincere, natural healers I've ever met. He doesn't do anything by the book. Yeah. And I am so, and he, he has his doctorate. He said he got his doctorate trying to heal himself. And, you know, and he said, I, I, this is where I realized that you can't get smart enough to heal your wounds. That it, it takes grace. Yeah. You know, you have to kind of go to that place of hell where you really let go and let God lift you up. He's a very spiritual guy. You know, let God lift you up. But, um, but you know his. But to be mentored and to have a guy like that as your boss, I mean, mm. my gosh, how lucky is that? He's, um, but I, I think that's absolutely true because you get you get this dose of if you don't have enough self assurance and bravado, you're not going to put your foot in the water in the first place. Yeah, yeah, those are but, beautiful but points. Then, 
Go ahead. Yeah, and 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 then you've got to have the humility to see yourself just really screw up. <laughs> like I remember in in my early days as a therapist, sitting sitting with somebody who's talking, and I can barely hear what they're saying because the thought going through my head is. Oh my gosh! In a minute, it's going to be my turn to talk, and I have no idea. You know, so there's that, like, oh, what am I doing? Yeah, the am feeling I, of utter incompetence you know? when when you're in a new role, even if it's a role that you know you're born to. Yeah. I mean, it it, yeah. it is true. I mean, yeah. you could be, you could just have passed the bar, but the first day that you walk into. There's no greater credential yeah. in any field that's more difficult to attain. But yeah. I imagine you're probably nervous as hell the first time you walk into the law firm that that you're getting to, you know. Um, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, would and you're imagine. not you're not going to be nailing the dismounts on that. on day one. You're going to be fumbling and and falling down, and yeah. and it can be excruciating. Yeah. And yeah. And then to have a client look at you with this puzzled look on their face, like, what did she just say? You know, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I mean, it's just that feeling. It's like, oh, 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 what I do now. And then, yeah. then you know, I got far, I got far enough along that I would say something like, you know, I know I'm supposed to say something here, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, well, I could just actually come clean with them and say, I'm not really sure. What to say to you right here? And I, what the interesting thing is, what I saw in a lot of people's faces was relief. Yeah. <laughs> because they thought, good, she's not bullshitting me. Yeah. You know, I think I can trust her. She's not bullshitting me. She doesn't know what to do either. It <laughs> somehow validated their dilemma, whatever it was. Um. So anyway, this is, but it's a long, it's a journey of. I think it's just kind of a journey of. How do you become more and more and more transparent? That's right. Yeah, there's nothing, there's no medicine like authentic human interaction, you know, yeah. when, it's, a, when yeah. it's a real friendship. Yeah. And you have to forget the fact that you are the psychologist yeah. or that you're being paid by somebody. And I think you really have yeah. to become, uh, I would say, you have to have skin in the game and you have to be committed to that person and be able to self-disclose, you know? Yeah. But you you definitely wrong. have you definitely have the gift, and I think it is a gift. This field it's a gift. It's not like learning uh, to be a plumber. I don't think you can yeah. learn. I don't think you can learn to do this if you yeah. don't have a. a feel. I mean, somebody asked me one time how long I've been doing this, and I said I think since I was about six. That's right. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I, I was really inspired by what you said about your mentor because. Um, it makes me think of, and by the way, I, I did mention this verse, uh, this passage from Rumi to the youngsters that I mentor uh, during the meditation period last week. Uh, but it reminded me of Rumi who said th this very powerful thing. This is a paraphrase at the end of one of his wonderful poems. He says something like, uh, this guy is saying, it's like Rumi is talking to somebody else, or actually he takes a position of Joseph uh, in the Bible. And Joseph is talking to this guy who's upset. And he says, well, this guy says, what do I do with my heart? And he says, what's in your heart? He says, it's filled with pain. And Joseph mm -hmm. says, and this is the last line of the poem, he says, like, uh, stay with it. The wound is, mm -hmm. is the place where the light enters you. Mm -hmm. I've heard that before. I heard yeah. that from Mar Marion Woodman's work. Have you ever heard of her? Uh -uh. She's a Jungian poet and analyst. She said God enters at the womb. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's probably Rumi where she got that. And uh, yeah. and your mentor, you know, I, I think that all of the best therapists are psychically or spiritually wounded people in some way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't want to say all the time. I think there are probably people who are just born gifted or whatever. But for the most part, I think that your mentor, like you kind of, I think, insinuated, he learned so much about his field by trying to and failing to mend his wound. And it's so interesting because there's a lot of Greek myths that do the same thing, the wounded healer mm -hmm. idea, where they try and yeah, fail to heal yeah. themselves. But they acquire the, the gift of healing other people in the process. And I yeah. do think, like you said, you know, I think sometimes it's not so much that you can heal your wounds, maybe, right? 
you know, what do you do if you're an amputee, for example? And I think it is analogous. Some things you can heal from. But some mm-hmm. things, it's about how am I going to compensate walking around with a missing limb, you know? Like, what do you Why? do with a girl who is molested by her father? Are you going to tell me that somehow mm-hmm. that hole in her heart is ever going to get filled? No, it's not. Yeah. What right. she's going to do right. is she's going to become a mother to a motherless cohort of young women. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is her compensation for her lost metaphorical mm-hmm. limb. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think that's how yeah. it works. And that's how that's kind of how what yeah. AA is predicated on because since I've never been an alcoholic, unless I want to go on a vendor, I, I'm not qualified to ever become a sponsor, you know, which I think there's some yeah. instinctive wisdom in that. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting stuff. But the times that you have, yeah. you you know, I've called you on a couple of occasions uh, with concerns about how to be a better father, and without it seemed pretty, it seemed pretty effortless for you to say things that really comforted me on a deep level and gave me some wisdom. Oh, so. I'm happy. I'm happy it had that effect. Thank yeah. that makes me happy to hear that. Yeah. So how is Ethan doing? Uh, he's, he's doing a little too fabulous. He's having so much fun that I don't know how he's going to ever land back on earth when he comes home, <laughs> but that's how I was at Maxwell. So, you know, I'm thrilled to death for him, yeah. but I see that's pictures good. of him and he's got such a smile and, you know, he's having great experiences and telling us all kinds of stories oh, that's and, good. and he's happy that's and awesome. he's, a, he's just doing great. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So things, things turned out very well, as you said they would, you know. And uh, so he's doing well. Well, good. Yeah. That's so good to hear. Yeah. Well, it has been a wonderful... As Vicky and I say our goodbyes at this point, I'm left wondering about the kind of moon English which was presented in the dream. I was supposed to teach it, and yet I hadn't fully learned it myself. What does this moon English suggest about the mentoring relationship? And for the rich give and take in all relationships which are caring and subtle, or through which heritage culture, or knowledge are transmitted. It's a language of art and of love, a language which is therapeutic, a melody at once foreign and familiar. There are so many interesting and meaningful symbols in this dream, we could go on for another hour analyzing it. However, I'll keep my closing comments brief and deal with just the features and symbols which I feel might be the most salient and curious to listeners. Also, one name I forgot to introduce who was mentioned was my wife's son, Ray. She's the one who I mentioned is sometimes able to understand parts of my dreams that I can't quite figure out. I wonder why kids in the dream were African and Asian boys. My own children are half Chinese, and I do feel a special connection with young black men for various reasons. My nephew is black, by the way. I have a lot of thoughts about this, but nothing which really puts a fine point on this aspect of the dream. It's enough to say that there is probably a strong connection to these demographics, and they are featured in my dreams fairly frequently. Remember the part where Vicky points out that my son Ethan, who is in the Czech Republic, has in a way gone to another world? This is a meaningful fact in the dream, I think. You see, in a way, I still see myself as the educator and mentor of my son, and I am trying to learn what I need to learn in order to mentor him. I'm trying to learn that moon language. As such, I too am visiting another realm, just as my son is. For both of us, this is a journey that is about education. An interesting detail is that moment of self-disclosure when I apologize to the children for my own incomplete training in the language I am trying to teach them. This suggests that humility and self-disclosure are key to connection. You can see how in the dream this announcement puts everyone at ease and helps them to understand and get on page. They are with me and everything sort of flows. There's a lot of wisdom in that idea, that being right all the time is a terrible policy as an educator and as a parent or mentor. 
Having a dream like this, I think, helps sensitize me to my son's reality, both by pointing out the similarities between what he is going through as a student and what I am going through both as a student of psychology and as his mentor. I thought it was curious how Vicky in the dream sort of pushes me forward and sends me out in front of the young folks. Notice how little Vicky says in the dream. As usual, she is characterized as someone who communicates through action, through her role in my life, and through the implicit wisdom in these matters. I think of how a plant begins to grow from a seed when the right signal thresholds are reached. These include an amount of time that has passed, the right temperature and moisture conditions, and sometimes other factors. I think a coming-of-age dream often deals with signals just like the signals of Vicky inviting me to her home on the moon and then sending me out to teach the youngsters. I wanted to make a point in case it wasn't obvious about why I emphasize the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell's comments on this. I don't see myself as a hero. That's not what I'm getting at. Hero myths are so important to cultures because even though we have examples of real heroes in history, what heroes also represent to us unconsciously is the journey from one stage of development to the next. When a child transitions to a man, or when a woman transitions into a wife and mother, or when a person becomes educated in their vocation, huge transformations happen. You must acquire capabilities and qualities you didn't start out with. It's not just a journey, it's a death and a rebirth. It requires a certain kind of courage, actually. And we get this calling, this signal, to make this journey in many ways which are internal or external. And I would say, in a way, really both internal and external at the same time. Think of how an adolescent feels changes that are in her body and at the same time her parents, school, and social requirements all change and give her signals in keeping with those bodily and psychological transformations. It's very challenging because the metamorphosis is so profound. It's a little like facing a kind of death, a little like a hero's journey. And when it doesn't go well, when the child fails to thrive or to fledge or becomes substance addicted, it's like a heroic tragedy. This is all often vividly represented in folklore, in mythology, in morality play, in the Bible, for example, in dreams, and even, I think, sometimes not that well, in hero stories coming out of Hollywood. Finally, I'd want to direct your attention to how boundaries are used in the dream. The dream opens with a boundary being exceeded, that is, the terrestrial boundary of life on Earth. I go to the moon where almost no one is allowed to go. On the moon, however, Vicky lets me know that I have to stay within the property boundaries of her home. In the second half of the dream, these boundaries are extended commiserate with time, experience, and with my increasing ability and wisdom, I guess. This just brings to mind how, as we develop and as we study and practice our vocation in life, there's always a tension between being constrained by limits and gradually extending those limits outwardly as we gain an ability in wisdom and in reputation. The dream just seems to comment about how this dance is important to pay attention to. On a similar note, I often comment to my boys that for Bruce Lee to become a master, he had to be a very disciplined and obedient student for many years. There's a lot more that can be done in exploring this dream, but I thought that these final notes gave some food for thought and uh, might pique your interest in mythology and in dream work. Thanks for listening in once again. I hope to hear from you. You can visit my site at fazoro.com. That's Foxtrot Alpha India Zulu Oscar Roger Oscar dot com and click on the Fazoro podcast link where you can leave comments and view any show notes and resources. You can also email me at Fazoro at gmail.com. Folks, thanks for joining us. Tall and tattoo your tales, you long forgotten gale. This ship ain't gonna sail mm-hmm. And i be standing in the stern You taught me how to learn Now I'm learning your cheating ways Oh, you taught me how to run